My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined today by someone I've known for many years, Jonathan Portes, who's worked in government and now works as an academic. So Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Why do you introduce yourself? So I'm Jonathan Portis. I'm Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London. And I'm also a senior fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe, which is a research network of academics who look at Brexit and its various manifestations. So just before we came on air, we were talking about the higher education sector where you work. And obviously, you're fortunately, I guess, from your perspective, not actually running the university. But as somebody in a higher education institution, what's your sense of where the mood is and what is likely to happen, particularly thinking of students starting their degrees in the autumn? Well, I think we have to find a way of delivering the university experience, which is both an educational and a broader social, cultural and personal one in the new circumstances we find ourselves. So on the one hand, that's going to lead to some acceleration of some trends that were happening already, moving to more online learning. But it also means, I think, finding ways of making the things that work well with personal interactions, seminars and so on, finding ways of continuing those and delivering those. I think we've probably all learned a couple of things during the period of the lockdown, personally, one of which is that you can do an awful lot of stuff, an awful lot of work, awful lot of interactions online and through the sorts of tools that you and I are using now. And that there are good reasons, economic, environmental, and social, why we should make more use of those tools. But I think we've also found out, or at least I certainly have, that it's not enough. I certainly am craving social and personal interaction. I want to go back to the office at least some of the time. And I think that's true in a university context as well for students. So we do have a lot of uncertainties, but I think, you know, we have to concentrate on ways of making things not as close to normal as possible for our students, but actually giving them what they are in many cases paying for or is being paid for, which is delivering education and learning, but at the same time delivering a wider set of experiences, which are also educational, but which are not just about transmitting knowledge remotely. So somebody who thinks deeply about public policy, just on this question of what we should be doing now, I co-wrote a blog post with Anthony Painter, my colleague from the RSA a few weeks ago, in which we suggested that we made the case for what we called a year of stabilisation. So we said, well, rather than this continuous process of constantly adjusting the rules, which has a problem of, on the one hand, people just get confused. And on the other hand, it's very difficult to plan because you don't know how the rules are going to evolve. We suggested, look, why don't we assume that? 
the virus is neither cured on the one hand, nor reaches the kind of pandemic proportions that it did here in kind of early April, but that we do need to maintain social distancing. How could we go about normalising life in those circumstances? But obviously, there's another argument, which is the one which is implicit in government policy, which is that you continuously adapt in the face of what has generally speaking been better news about the spread of the virus, and more recently about the possibility of being able to treat it more effectively. What do you think, Jonathan, is the balance there of those two models? One, which is to try to provide people with some kind of medium-term framework for planning, and the other is continuously adapting. I have to say I'm more inclined towards the latter, because I'm not convinced that the former is likely to be what you would call politically time-consistent, as something Chris Giles observed in a very similar context a couple of months ago, and he was, of course, quite right Because the reason is that if you make a regulation which broadly constrains both activity one and activity two by 30%, because you think that they have roughly the same risk, and then in six months you discover that activity one is actually almost risk-free, whereas activity two turns out to be even more risky than you first thought, you may have said, oh, well, I put this framework in place to give stability. You're not going to be able to sustain politically maintaining the same level of regulation for both activities because the public, frankly, won't wear it. And I think one thing which we have clearly learned over the last couple of months, and which, of course, both you and I know from long experience, is the sort of mental model of the public as this sort of passive people waiting to be told by government what to do in response to a crisis like this, and then doing it just isn't the case. Lockdowns were you know, imposed by governments in most places to a greater or lesser degree, but mostly the impact of lockdown was people taking decisions on the basis of the information that they perceived, some of which came from government, some of which came from scientists, some of which just came from out there. So the idea that government can simply decide how it's going to be, you know, we've already seen that disproved in this crisis, I think. Having argued the alternative position a few weeks ago, I tend to think that you're probably right. You're certainly right in terms of, I think, what is politically possible, whether or not We will look back on this having gone in and out of lockdown and maybe if there's a second wave and think, well, maybe we could have had a more consistent kind of intermediary stage. Well, we'll see. But anyway, this conversation, Jonathan, is taking us to what I'm sure we're going to talk about for the rest of our time, which is how government works. And so let me ask you the question we're asking everybody on this podcast. So Jonathan Portes, how do you think the world should and the world could change after this pandemic? I think we need to come out of this crisis, not without making the mistakes that we made last time, because of course, it's a different crisis and a different time. You mean 2007-8? Yeah, I mean 2007-9. to But at least learning the lessons of how to think about the future rather better than we did last time. Last time, unfortunately, we came out thinking that the way to prepare for the next crisis, and this was true here, but it was also true in many other countries, was to get the public finances back on track to restore the fiscal capacity of the state by cutting the deficit and to a limited extent by making the financial system more resilient. And I think we missed the bigger picture. In doing that, we made the state and society less resilient. And we discovered going into this crisis that we had a benefit system that had cut back well beyond the point at which it could provide the support people needed during the crisis, a social care system, which we had all known for the last 10, if not 20 years, was underfunded and understaffed and all the rest of it. And 
hence was particularly vulnerable to this particular pandemic. We also, I think, discovered that the way our government functions in response to a crisis like this compared rather badly internationally. And I think that, I have to say, surprised me because I took the view that actually the UK was quite good at incorporating scientific advice into government policy. I thought the UK was quite good at risk assessment and disaster preparedness. I thought because we had things like the National Risk Register on which a pandemic was number one, and we had mechanisms like SAGE, that we'd actually be relatively good at coping with a crisis like this. And all that turned out to be sadly wrong for a number of reasons. We largely ignored the experience of other countries. We were arrogant and insular. I wouldn't say, you know, racist is the wrong word, but I think we dismissed the experience of Asian countries casually uh, without really thinking it through. And there definitely was something cultural there. And I think, you know, I'm not pointing figures at individuals or even politicians. I think this is a criticism of the British political classes and policymaking class as a whole. So in your, just to break in, John, so in your diagnosis of why Britain doesn't seem to have coped very well with the crisis, certainly in the early stages, what is the balance of, on the one hand, the medium-term effect of austerity in terms of reducing the capacity of government to be able to deal with something like this, which is your kind of point about resilience? And to what extent was it actually more contingent factors to do with the form of political leadership that we had? And, and also... I mean, let's be fair, the scientific advice, because it's not true to say that the scientists were saying that we should have locked down earlier. Some were, but actually the establishment scientists were with the politicians pretty much up to the point at which we changed our policy in saying that full lockdown wasn't necessary. I think that's right. I'm not sure that I would attach that much some blame, but not that much blame to the particular set of politicians that we had in charge at the moment, as opposed to the structural factors. So I think certainly the the hollowing out of the state, thanks to austerity, and the reduction in capacity and, you know, in social care and local authorities, all that I think was a big part of it. But I think you're absolutely right. The fact that we locked down too late is not something that you can attribute to Boris Johnson or a few people around him. Obviously, politically, they're accountable and they should be. But I think that was a systemic failure and it does attach to civil servants, scientists, perhaps at least as much as it attaches to them. So I absolutely think that you know there is something there. And when I talked about you know our cultural unwillingness to learn from other countries, especially Asian ones, I was not referring only or even mainly to politicians, actually. So when we look around the world, Jonathan, to which countries have coped best, and I had an, a really eye-opening conversation with Audrey Tang, who's the kind of Minister for Technology and I think more, more broadly for strategy in Taiwan. It seems to me that amongst the key ingredients are these three. The first, that governments are competent, that they have the capacity, and in a certain sense, the kind of self-confidence to be able to respond to this. I think actually a part of that is that they have been through a process like this, certainly in Taiwan, part of it was that they had had to respond to the risk of pandemic before. The second element seems to be trust between citizens and leaders. And interestingly, I found in that Often part of this has been there's been something that's happened in the last few years, which has led to a kind of pushback against forms of authoritarian or paternalistic government. And there have been movements that have forced government to be more responsive to citizens. 
And so that trust has been an important part. I thought in Taiwan and South Korea, this seemed to be quite significant, maybe in the leadership in New Zealand and other places as well. And then the third element seemed to be reasonably devolved systems so that it was possible for lower levels of government to act and coordinate quickly. If you'd known from the outset that those were the three criteria for success, you probably could have predicted that Britain wasn't going to do that well, couldn't you? That's right. Although on trust, I'm not sure that you needed to have that much more going into it in the sense that when the lockdown was imposed here and in the few weeks after that, trust in government and trust in the government strategy was very high. And indeed, you know, I'm not a particularly sympathetic to this government overall, but my view at that time was very much, you know, these guys are doing broadly the right thing. They seem to have a strategy. They seem to know what they're doing. This all seems very sensible. And so I think that trust was actually there here. I think most British people, while we are a polit, you know, we do have a lot of political knockabout and there's a lot of ideological conflict and in British politics, I think fundamentally, most people in this country do think that when it comes to a crisis, a war or a pandemic, that government is going to try to do the right thing. And I think that was there initially. I think it's been squandered a bit over the last six weeks. And you've seen that in in all the public opinion measures, partly because of the Cummings affair, but also because I think just a more general sense that the government doesn't really know what it's doing or have a strategy and that it's being pushed from one extreme to the other. And and that interacts very much with the other factors that you identified. So it's not obvious to me that the government has done anything obviously wrong, malicious, or stupid in its trying to get schools reopened. But it has made a terrible, terrible hash of it. And people notice that. And that relates very much to the two other points that you made, which is capacity and the ability to delegate and empower locally to people who know how to get things done at a local level and can be reasonably trusted both by the center and by their own local electorates to do things sensibly. How would you then go about rebuilding the capacity of government? What is it that needs to change? Is it simply to do with resources or is it particularly forms of expertise or is it even the very kind of model of change that we have in government? I mean, Dominic Cummings, before he was famous for rather peculiar ways of testing his eyesight, was famous for his memo calling for particular types of kind of weirdos and uh, techies to come into government. Do you think he was right in some senses about the capacity gaps in government? I mean, I certainly think he was right in some ways. And indeed, when that memo came out, I wrote an article saying not only that there was a lot of truth to this, but this is something that, of course, you know this, we've been saying about the civil service for at least the last half century, that it puts too much of a premium on people who can write essentially clever essays and not enough value is attached to the understanding of science, statistics, and so on. So there clearly is a lot of truth to that. On the other hand, if you take that into some of the other things that he was essentially arguing for, which is that, you know, we should have smart people at the center who can solve problems using big data and artificial intelligence, Well, we have seen that when that came to developing a tracing app, which 
apparently has now been kicked into the long grass, that the approach of getting a few clever people at the center of government to do it, as opposed to using a different approach, hasn't worked very well. I mean, I think the basic idea that you need some more scientific and statistical literacy in Whitehall and Westminster is one that I've long argued for. But that in itself isn't a theory of change for the state. And there, I think, you know, you do need to find ways of building and rebuilding local capacity. I'm not the expert on how to do that. You know far more about that than I do. But that at least is going to be one part of it. I mean, you know, resources does matter. You know, you're not going to create a decent social care system in this country without substantially more resources. So we shouldn't close our eyes to that, but it's clearly not the only answer either. I mean, a big part of this, Jonathan, is the relationship between politics and policy. So if I think back over my years in government or advising government, clearly the imperatives of politics, which are to do with winning elections, maintaining support of your own political party, and mollifying elements of the press, are different from the imperatives of policy, which are to do with evidence and impact. And my sense is that as what has happened over the last few decades is that the imperatives of politics and policy have become more divided and that in the end, and this is what populism is about, the logic of politics has triumphed over the logic of policy. Arguably, even the technology of politics has advanced more quickly than the technology and efficacy of policy interventions. And, it, you know, I observe, I remember, I think you were in government as well, when the government put in these kind of capability assessments, they looked at departments and how capable they were. And I remember at the time saying to the cabinet secretary, Gus O'Donnell, that the one thing these missed out was the relationship that was most often the source of problems when it came to departments getting things wrong. And that was the interaction between politicians and their advisors and the civil service. But of course, that was off bounds when it came to these capability reviews. Now, as somebody who has loudly, cogently, powerfully kind of criticised government for pursuing political agendas rather than following the evidence, particularly in the area of migration, do you think this question of how it is we align politics and policies is completely intractable? Or are there ways of doing it better? I don't think it is politically intractable. Has it got harder? It's hard to say. I mean, I think we all, perhaps you and I, or people like us, think that there was a sort of heyday of mid-period Blairism when, based on Blair's famous, what matters is what works, which, of course, we all knew at the time was hopelessly oversimplified because the idea that politics didn't matter then and all that mattered was evidence was, of course, not true then. So I'm not sure one can hark back to a sort of golden age. It is always going to be a very difficult problem, but I don't think it is necessarily an intractable one. The skill set needed in government then is, on the one hand, you need to have people doing policy who can explain and persuade to politicians why doing things that are good policy are also in their political interests, which often, if not always, is the case. And that really is an art. That's why I always get a little wary when I see, I was reading an article this morning that you know, made again this distinction, well, you know, the scientists just advise, it's for the, the politicians take the decisions, it's not the scientist's job to take decisions, it's not the politician's job to do science. One advises, one decides. And of course, that's true constitutionally and formally, and it should be true constitutionally and formally. But as we know, actual decision-making doesn't work that way. If you want to get your 
evidence and analysis turned into policy, you have to think of ways of presenting it to politicians in a way that explains why your particular policy is one that will help them to deliver their objectives and their objectives will be inherently and they should be inherently political objectives and that's fine. Has doing that become more difficult? I mean, I think that clearly there have been developments over the past few years which have made it more difficult, the rise of populism and so on you referred to. Certainly lots of civil servants that you and I now have found it more difficult in the context of Brexit to do that. On the other hand, you refer to immigration, and I think I'd make a couple of points there. First of all, is that while I'm an economist, and obviously the stuff I write is primarily about the economics of immigration, it would be crazy for me to claim that all decisions about immigration policy should be made solely on the basis of economic criteria. Not only is that not politically realistic, it's not what I think as a person, as a voter, uh, as anything else. You politicians do have to look in this in the round. But second, you know, British public opinion, we know this on the basis of quite a lot of research and evidence now, British public opinion on both the economic and the broader impacts has changed quite a lot over the last 10 years in broadly a positive direction. People are a lot less worried about immigration than they were 10 years ago, and they're more confident it's had a positive impact, both economic and broader cultural impact. So these things can change in a positive direction as well as a negative direction. Going back to this point about what do we need to do to strengthen government, it seems to me there's something the government has done which is quite interesting in this crisis, and there's something it hasn't done, and I'm interested in your view on both of these things. So the first is government has been more agile it, for example, I think, redesigned things like the self-employment support scheme about three or four times. So almost in real time, it developed a policy, promulgated the policy, a big expensive policy, and then wasn't unwilling to change it, was willing to change it, willing to adapt it, willing to recognise it wasn't perfect. And I think that's very interesting, because I think one of the problems of policy is that the world moves very quickly, it's quite complex, and we're not very agile in adapting policy as we actually see its effect unfolding. The thing the government hasn't done, which I'm a great fan of and which I think can help with this politics policy issue, is public deliberation, inviting the public in to understand the complexity of a particular challenge and in so doing kind of legitimise hard choices by being able to demonstrate that ordinary citizens, when they do understand the issues in the round, recognise the need for tough choices. Agility, deliberation, do you think they're part of what we need to do to have a, a state that's more fit for purpose? Yes. And I mean, I agree with you on the economic response. I think the government has been speedy, adaptable, non-ideological on the whole. And on the whole, the Treasury, as far as I can tell, has learned broadly the right lessons from the last crisis. It's done some of the same things it did in the last crisis, only better. And I think it's learned from some of its mistakes. So I think that is a positive example. I agree with you on the public deliberation point and transparency point, and clearly one of the big failings here has been a combination of lack of transparency and defensiveness over, in particular, the health-related decisions. And that seems to me to be an entirely avoidable own goal in the sense that it would have been easier to change course as the evidence changed had it been clear what the basis for changing course was. It would have been both less embarrassing politically, but also more sustainable and would have carried more conviction with the public. And I think that, you know, that that continues to be quite damaging. You still do not get a sense that if we take, for example, the question of whether to reduce 
the social distancing distance from two meters to one meter to put a, a complicated decision very, very crudely. I'm not an expert, but my reading of the evidence is that there's a pretty good case for this. But I think the way the government has gone about it by publicly dithering, but not arguing or debating about the or exposing the evidence in public, but dithering and then presenting it as a argument within cabinet about the economy versus lives, almost guarantees that when a decision is finally announced, it will be challenged for good and bad reasons by people who are either trying to make political points or who genuinely don't believe that the government is well-intentioned or is to come to this decision on the basis of the evidence. So you have a context in which you may end up with the right decision in the abstract, but taken in the wrong way. And because it's taken in the wrong way, it will be less effective because people will not trust because they don't trust the way it's been taken, will not observe it and won't respond to the decision in the way that the government hopes they will. And that's potentially very damaging indeed. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful point, Jonathan. I completely agree. I mean, one of the things that I've argued about this kind of politics-policy dichotomy is that politics requires politicians, generally speaking, to say the policy I'm proposing is perfect. There is no risk and there is no downside. And of course, that's total baloney. If there were policies that could be implemented that had no downsides and trade-offs, they would have been implemented a long time ago because basically politicians want to be popular and they're broadly speaking want the world to be a better place. So if we were in the habit of publishing policy assessments, which enlightened people into the fact that every policy has risks and trade-offs. There might initially be some pain to be gone through and some exploitation by parts of the media. But I think after a while, people would settle down and recognise that that's the reality of the world. So I agree with you that transparency is part of this. Now, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is ridiculous, because it's a topic that we could talk about for half an hour. And it actually goes back to when I first met you, when I think you were working in the Department of Work and Pensions. So it's not fair, Jonathan. But in two minutes, tell me, how do you think labour market policy should change, particularly as we move into this recovery period? Well, the urgent requirement is to pivot from supporting people in the jobs they currently have, which is the quite reasonable objective of the furlough scheme, to supporting people into new jobs, because some jobs simply aren't going to be viable after the furlough scheme is phased out because consumer habits have changed or because restrictions remain in place or simply because firms have gone bust. And also we will have a very large number of young people from school and university coming onto the labor market in September. So there are going to be a lot of people who need new jobs, not merely to be helped to keep the jobs they already have. And that will require a really quite a major program of government support, training and retraining grants, and something very much like the Future Jobs Fund, which was quite successful after the 2008-9 crisis, essentially a government job creation scheme for unemployed young people. So that's the first priority, is to promote getting unemployed people, and there will be a lot of unemployed people, into jobs. After that, we need to think about how to reshape the UK labour market for the next few years. And that requires, I think, paying a lot more attention to the quality of jobs and job security in the broadest sense for the people, the two sets of people who've been most affected by this crisis, the key workers who've been working throughout the crisis. And by that, I mean, low paid hospital staff, supermarket workers, delivery workers, and so on, on the one hand, and then the group of people who've lost their jobs or had their jobs threatened by this crisis, people working in accommodation, food services, hospitality, entertainment, and so on. I agree with every word of that, Jonathan. And I think, I mean, just one final thought, going back again to DWP, 
I had a really interesting conversation with senior officials there before the break in which they were, I'm sure you knew this, but I hadn't quite kind of been aware of it, of the degree to which DWP kind of pulled out of the rather punitive conditionality regimes, which had been set up, you know, I think originally kind of set up under Labour and been further tightened. And DWP officials clearly wanted to see the future of their department as being much more to do with job security, job progression, and supporting people in work, and much less to do with kind of various mechanisms to strong arm people into work on the assumption that people will otherwise skive off. So it seems to me one opportunity is for DWP, which is a department with lots of strength and lots of expertise to pivot itself into a slightly different kind of beast in this new labour market. Do you think that's a, a naive aspiration? Well, it's certainly not naive in the sense that it's what we need. It requires quite a significant reorientation It requires resourcing, it requires skilled people, and it requires rebuilding some capacity that has been lost over the last few years as we've wound down employment support programs because there didn't seem to be a problem getting people into jobs. You know, the the department does have a lot of expertise and capability in some senses, but it's also going to require rebuilding some capabilities and resourcing some new ones. It's been a fantastic conversation, Jonathan. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank you, Matthew. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.